Thank you for listening to Vera Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We are now continuing with Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman. And welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the completion, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Now, uh, last week's show, if you listened to last week's show, I read some passages from an excellent book called Abandonment to Divine Providence by Jean-Pierre de Cossade, Father Jean-Pierre de Cossade. And um, I chose to make that the topic of the show last week because we are at a point in time in the history of the country and in the... um, uh, We're kind of at a crossroads And I think that a lot of us are quite uncertain about what the future holds. And, you know, without getting too specific, some of us are quite concerned with what the future might hold. And so it's always good to remind oneself that God is not on vacation and he has not disappeared. He's not like the God of the pagans in in the story in Kings when Elijah had the uh, battle of the prophets of Baal and Elijah taunted them saying, well, maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he's gone away on a trip. Maybe he has gone to the restroom and will be a while before he comes back. But our God is not like that because our God is the real God. He's always there and absolutely everything that he arranges for us individually and for a society as a whole is the best possible thing that could be arranged for the purpose for which he made the world, which is essentially the salvation of our souls and an eternity with him, an eternity of bliss with him in heaven. So, so I guess because I'm a little bit um, also wrapped up in this, I wanted to go back to abandonment to divine providence and continue reading, so to speak. And um, continue worshiping God through divine providence is really what it amounts to. So with that, I will I will do that. Um, I will also make a note that uh, this is a little bit of an experimental show in that I'm trying to to do it um, with video also to to some uh, people who watch me on on YouTube. So. I hope I don't think there are any compromises in the sound going out over the radio. Uh, I think there may be some compromises in the sound going over out over YouTube. But since this is primarily a Radio Maria show, I wanted to not do any injustice to my Radio Maria listeners. Now, it's also a live call-in show. And the number here is 866-333-6279, which, not coincidentally spells um or spells m-a-r-y mary the end of it that is the 6279 is mary so the number here is 866-333-m-a-r-y or 866-333-6279 and i welcome any calls um that uh but of course i it's best if the calls uh are part of the uh part of the conversation of the show so to speak so if they are around um, divine providence, actually. So anyway, uh, again, 866-333-6279, I welcome your calls. And I will take a short musical break about halfway through. And very often that is a very opportune time for callers to call because then coming out of the break, I, I look at the call board and see if any calls come in. First of all, let me start at the very beginning. Uh, I know this introduction is a repeat of of what I read last week, but it's really only the introduction, then I'll go on to the new material. But it really just sets the stage. And uh, Father Kossad explains 
uh, three principles that are the foundation of understanding divine providence. First principle, nothing is done, nothing happens, either in the material or moral world, which God has not foreseen from all eternity, and which he has not himself willed, or at least permitted. In other words, his ordaining will, uh, dictating what he really wants to happen, and his permissive will, which um, allows, of course, everything allows man's free will, but his permissive will allows things that he does not positively will, i.e. sin. Second principle, God can, well, I'm going to change the grammar a little bit to make it a little bit clearer. God neither wills anything or permits anything that doesn't serve the end which he proposed in creating the world, that is, his glory and the glory of the man God, Jesus Christ, his only son. In other words, God created the world with an end in view, and that end in view was his own glory and the glory of the man God, Jesus Christ, his only son. Now, however, as long as man lives upon the earth, God desires to be glorified through the happiness and blessedness of this privileged creature, in other words, of us, of mankind. And consequently, in God's designs, the interest of man's sanctification and happiness is inseparable from the interest of his design, divine glory. In other words, from our perspective, we could equally well say that God created the entire world for the sanctification and happiness of man. Because the sanctification and happiness of man is our role in serving God, God's glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we do not lose sight of these principles, which no Christian can question, we shall understand that our confidence in the providence of our Father in Heaven cannot be too great, too absolute, too childlike. If nothing but what He permits happens, and if He can permit nothing except that which is for our happiness and sanctification, then we have nothing to fear except not being sufficiently submissive to God. As long as we keep ourselves united with him and we walk after his designs, were all creatures to turn against us, they could not harm us. Essentially, the only thing that can harm us is turning away from God's will, and most particularly, of course, the severest form of turning away from God's will, which is sin, and even, God forbid, mortal sin, which um, ruptures our relationship to God. So that's just by way of introduction, laying the foundation, so to speak. And now I will go on, and I will, um, I will read from, again, Abandonment or Absolute Surrender to Divine Providence by Father de Cossade. I can't recommend this book too highly, and um, alongside with it, I should probably, uh, if I have time during the break, maybe I'll, I'll pull it up, but I also recommend, in the same light, what's known as the Surrender Novena, that's by a father, Dolindo, D-O-L-I-N-D-O, which uh, also emphasizes <laughs> divine providence. And, you know, we know the, we all know the, I hope we all know the Divine Mercy Revelations to St. Faustina. Um, and you know that the image that Jesus wanted painted of Divine Mercy had along the bottom, um, Jesus, I trust in you. And Jesus told St. Faustina, essentially, that nothing gives him more honor than when people absolutely trust in him, absolutely have full confidence in his providence. And the only thing that limits the graces that he pours out on people is their lack of confidence in him. Anyway, reading from de Cossade, the divine action, the will of God, 
is as unworthily treated and disregarded in its daily manifestation by many Christians as was Jesus in the flesh by the Jews. Now, this is a very interesting section. I will, of course, read it, but you know this is Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. And what does this have to do with Judaism? Well, de Cossade is actually making a parallel between the Jews at the time of Jesus not believing in him, not trusting in him, and the Christian in our daily life not believing in Jesus, not trusting in him, because we do not have confidence in divine providence. Interesting parallel. De Cossade, what infidelity we find in the world, how unworthily men think of God. They criticize his divine action as they would not dare to criticize the work of the humblest artisan. They would force him to act within the narrow limits of their weak reason and follow its rules. They pretend to reform all things. They unceasingly complain and murmur. They are shocked at the treatment Jesus received at the hands of the Jews. Oh, divine love, adorable will, infallible action. How do they look upon thee? Can the divine will err? Can anything it sends be amiss? But I have this to do. I need such a thing. I have been deprived of the necessary means. That man thwarts me in such good works. Is this not most unreasonable? This sickness overtakes me when I absolutely need my help. In other words, what um, I'll, I'm just going to kind of recap what de Cossade is doing is considering that whenever we kick at the gold, um, resist divine providence, we're actually telling God that he doesn't know his business. And he's not doing a good job of sculpting our lives, carving our lives, weaving together our lives out of all of the circumstances of our lives in order to make the most perfect finished product, which is our souls essentially worthy for heaven. We are insulting God in a way that we wouldn't dream of insulting the humblest artisan who is doing a work for us. You know, we hire our carpenter to make a table and we stand over him and say, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know how to cut wood. Why is that piece so big? Why is that piece so thin? Why are you using that kind of a joint? Of course, we wouldn't be doing that. Even with a very fallible artisan that is doing something for us. We're talking about God. <laughs> We're talking about God who's doing something for us. He is weaving our destiny. He's weaving our lives together with all the other lives of all the other human beings on earth for the greatest possible good for essentially souls in heaven. And yet, we are not ashamed at all. We don't restrain ourselves at all at constantly criticizing him that he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, I, so... I'll, I'll repeat these these lines of de Cossade in that light. This is us saying, but I have to do this thing now. I need this now. I need this other thing now. I, you know, I've been deprived of what I need to do what I have to do. That man thwarts me and the good that I'm trying to do. Isn't that unreasonable? The sickness overtakes me when I absolutely need my health to do what I have to do. So basically, we're just continually, continually critiquing, criticizing God's work in our lives. No, dear souls, the will of God is all that is absolutely necessary to you. Therefore, you do not need what he withholds from you. You lack nothing. If you could read or write these things which you call accidents, disappointments, misfortunes, contradictions, which you find unreasonable, untimely, you would blush with confusion. You would regard your murmurs as blasphemies. But you do not reflect at all that these things are simply the will of God. This adorable will is blasphemed by his dear children who fail to recognize it. Saint, uh, Saint Padre Pio used to say, I don't think it's original with him, I think it's a number of saints who have said it, that um, God is weaving a tapestry with all of the events of our lives and while we are on earth, while we're alive, we're looking at the tapestry from the back. 
and all we see is a chaos of random brightly cut what appears to be random brightly colored threads starting and stopping and only after we die does the tapestry get turned over and we see it from the top and we see the the beautiful work of art that god has woven out of all of the circumstances of our lives and um you know i'm no longer a teenager i think most of you are no longer teenagers I think that if any of us look at our lives with honesty, looking back over our lives, assuming that we're out of our 20s, we will see that it was precisely that probably most of the things that had the most positive formable form f- formative effect on our lives, on our morality, on our spirituality, on our relationship with God, on our growth in love, almost all of the events that affected those things the most positively were things that we thought of as misfortunes at the time. Just bringing it back to earth, actually, I would be astonished if anyone if anyone uh, disagreed with that. Um, when I look back over my life, uh, you know, it's really true. Almost everything that I had thought of as the worst disaster at the time was um, a great, great, great blessing. Um, and in fact, most of the things that I thought of as the greatest victory at the time were detrimental, I must admit. Many of them were detrimental to my um, moral bearing and my uh, proper maturing. Back to de Corsade. When you were on earth, O my Jesus, the Jews treated you as a sorcerer, called you a Samaritan, and now that you live in eternity, how do we regard your adorable will forever worthy of praise and blessing? Has there been a moment from the creation to this present one in which we live, excuse me, has there been a moment from creation to this present one in which we live, and will there be one to the last day in which the holy name of God is not worthy of praise, that name which fills all time and all the events of time, that name which renders all things salutary. What? Can that which is called the will of God work me harm? Shall I fear? Shall I fly from the will of God? Oh, where shall I go to find something more profitable if I fear the divine action and resist the effect? of the divine will. How faithfully we should listen to the words which are each moment uttered in the depths of our hearts. If our senses, our reason, do not hear, do not penetrate the truth and wisdom of these words, is it not because of their incapacity to divine eternal truths? Should I be surprised that a mystery disconcerts reason? God speaks. It is a mystery. Therefore it is death to the senses and reason. For it is the nature of mysteries to immolate to themselves sense and reason. Through faith, mystery becomes the life of the heart. To all else, it is contradiction. The divine action kills while it quickens. The more we feel death, the firmer our faith that it will give life. The more obscure the mystery, the more light it contains. Hence it is that the simple soul finds nothing more divine than that which is least so externally. The life of faith wholly consists in this constant struggle against the senses. Wow. I think I could spend the rest of this hour unpacking this one short paragraph of perhaps a half a dozen sentences. How... I'll just... You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to repeat it. And I'm just going to stop at a couple of points. I could just repeat this for the rest of the hour. That would be worthwhile too. What? Can that which is called the will of God work me harm? Okay? Worth stopping there. Can anything which is the will of God be to my detriment, be genuinely harmful to me? No. Because God is all good. And he is, and he loves mankind. God is all good and he loves mankind. 
and he is all-powerful. So nothing which can be called the will of God can work us harm because otherwise God wouldn't be doing it or wouldn't be permitting it because he wants our good. So the only thing which can work us harm is actually our own sin, our own sin. Other people's sin cannot work us harm directly because even if they torture us and kill us, God is permitting them to torture us and kill us, and he is permitting it for our greater good. However, I will add this. This is my own little theory that I've become uh, enamored with. Um, you know, everyone's afraid of this uh, supposedly super contagious virus right now. Well, sin is a contagious virus. And in fact, when somebody does us harm, when somebody sins against us, that's when we should be wearing a mask and sanitizing our hands and holding our breath to not catch the germ. Because that's when we are tempted to sin in return, right? Somebody sins against us, somebody makes us angry, or excuse me, doesn't make us angry, but insults us or, or hurts us or hits us. We are tempted to anger, we're tempted to hatred, we're tempted to revenge, we are tempted to sin. And that is the virus of their sin jumping out of them and into us. And that is the true contagion to be scared of rather than the contagion of some random flu virus. Um, anyway, that, that's the only... Uh, anyway, I should get back to de Cossade. Um, nothing which is called the will of God can possibly work us harm. Shall we fear from the will of God? Where could we go to find something more profitable if we fear the divine action and resist the effect of the divine will, really, how can we improve on God's plan for us? How can we improve on the divine will? We really want to flee the divine will in order to come up with a better solution, a better program for our lives, because we know better than God. You see how this, all, this whole story that de Cossade is painting is so parallel to uh, the Jews' rejection of Jesus, right? Because it's like, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want you to be the Messiah. You have it all wrong. The Messiah is supposed to do this. The, the Messiah is supposed to do that. He's not supposed to be like you. You know, he's not supposed to have human feelings or he's not supposed to, um, you know, be peaceful and not wage war or whatever. The, the way the Jews were always knowing how to be a Messiah better than Jesus knew how to be a Messiah, so to speak, in their own minds, was exactly the way we're always knowing how to be God better than God does, so to speak, if you see the parallel. Um, anyway, how faithfully we should listen to the words which are each moment uttered in the depths of our hearts. If our senses, our reason do not hear, do not penetrate the truth and wisdom of these words, is it not because of their incapacity to absorb divine eternal truths? Now, de Cossade is doing something very profound here, which is he is setting up a contrast, kind of a comparison, between, actually, he's, he's setting up a triumvirate of three separate factors. Our senses and reason, in other words, our human faculties of understanding, our normal reasoning ability, and our senses. Okay, that's one item in this triangle of three items. A second item in this triangle is the divine mystery. All of the things that have to do with God that are not of this world and are not comprehensible in the ordinary way of thinking that we are have trained ourselves to think because we usually are dealing with physical things, with our senses, and with kind of practical reason. So we have divine mysteries, we have our senses and our human reason, 
And then there is a third item, thank God, in this triangle, and that is faith. That is faith. And what uh, de Cossade is doing here, and I'm going to go back and read it, because he's going to do a much better job than I can do, is he's saying, look, all of these things, everything that God does in our lives is actually in the department of divine mysteries. We cannot expect to wrap our minds around them, understand them, certainly judge them using ordinary human sense reason. However, there is a third item, which is faith. And the more we grow in faith, the more we grow in the wisdom of God, essentially, the more light we have on the divine mysteries and the more ability we have to see what happens to us in the light of in the light of faith you could say or you could say in the light of god's wisdom um so with that i'm going to uh repeat this um uh repeat this uh short paragraph how faithfully we should listen to the words which are each moment uttered in the depths of our hearts if our senses, our reason, do not understand, do not penetrate the truth and wisdom of these words, is it not because of their inability to, to um, understand eternal truths? Should I be surprised that a mystery disconcerts reason? Do you see? I mean, wouldn't, they wouldn't be calling it a mystery. It wouldn't be called a mystery if it didn't disconcert reason. That doesn't mean that a mystery can never be understood, or that we can never grow in understanding a, a mystery, is, a, is called a mystery only because at first encounter it escapes ordinary reason. And it requires wisdom, wisdom in the meaning that it has in the Old Testament, which actually is seeing things through the eyes of faith. It requires a kind of um, faith-based wisdom to gradually un, un, you know, peel the layers of the onion of the mystery. We'll never, we'll never fathom it to its depths, but we can chip away at the surface of it through a faith-infused reason. But we are absolutely hopeless to, to understand it at all with a kind of sense-based reason. Okay? Should I be surprised that a mystery disconcerts reason? God speaks, it is a mystery. Therefore it is death to the senses and reason. For it is the nature of mysteries to immolate to themselves sense and reason. Just look at all of the beautiful statements of uh, Jesus. Okay, unless a man dies, he has no life. But, um, you know, and... and um, uh, anyway, I... I haven't prepared that, so I can't really ad-lib it. But you can go think of all of the apparent paradoxes that Jesus speaks, such as, in, unless you, you know, unless a man die, he has no genuine life within him. That's a paraphrase, of course. Um, and, of course, that Jesus' ultimate victory for all of mankind was his death on the cross, what certainly appeared to be the most total failure in the history of of, of religion, right? Everywhere you look, you find uh, uh, apparent paradoxes in Jesus's words and in his life itself. And that is precisely because he is an illustration of divine mystery penetrating into um, sense reality. And, and therefore, therefore, you have all of these occasions in his words and in his life itself where he disconcerted reason, where the mystery of his life, the mystery of his words were disconcerting to reason. God speaks, it is a mystery, therefore it is death to the senses and reason, for it is the nature of mysteries to immolate to themselves sense and reason. Through faith, mystery becomes the life of the heart. To all else, it is contradiction. Okay, so as one grows in faith, the, the divine mysteries themselves become the animating force of the heart, the warmth of the heart. 
the inspiration of the heart. Uh, think of that in, in the light of divine providence that, or um, uh, is one example, of course, is St. Dieter Stein, or for that matter, Maximilian Kolbe. What divine providence brought them was unimaginable physical suffering in Auschwitz and in Birken, uh, Birkenau. And, and it was, it was, it was actually the love of their hearts. They were radiant. They were radiant, um, as the divine mystery of the divine providence, um, was like, what's the word through faith? Mystery becomes the life of the heart. The, the, the mystery of the divine providence of their lives became the life of their hearts and their hearts were exploding with love of God and with love of fellow men. Um, to all else, it is contradiction. The divine action kills while it quickens. The more we feel death, the firmer our faith that it will give life. The more obscure the mystery, the more light it contains. So here again, you have the idea that, that Jesus said, I, I wish I had the quote directly in front of me, that you basically you have to die to this world to gain eternal life. That is, of course, true in the physical sense, because until we die and take our last breath and are ready to be buried underground, we won't enter fully into eternal life. But it also exists as a spiritual reality that we have to sever our rootedness in physical, in our physical lives in order to grow in our spiritual lives. So this process of um, the more we feel death, the firmer our faith that it will give life, the more obscure the mystery, the more light it contains. This process of dying physically to gain eternal life is not just a one-time thing that happens you know, shortly before our funeral, but it's actually, it's actually the Christian journey through life. Hence it is that the simple soul finds nothing more divine than that which is least so externally. Hence it is that the simple soul finds nothing more divine than that which is least so externally. What could be less divine than being carted off to Auschwitz and tortured every day by Nazi guards. That certainly doesn't seem very divine, right? But it was to um, to Edersteyn and it was to St. Maximilian Kolbe. I think when he says simple soul, he means it in the philosophical sense, like when Jesus said um, something about unless the eye be single, it doesn't see. That is that kind of um, of uh, um, integrity and wholeness that that he means by simple. The life of faith wholly consists in this constant struggle against the senses. So there again, we have that um, that same uh, that same concept. Only this time, it's actually said in so many words that this struggle between all of our reality being our physical sense experience versus the life of faith is a con is the constant actually it's the constant struggle throughout life the life of faith wholly consists in this constant struggle against the senses and now with that i have gone over time past the uh, halfway point in the hour i will um play a um a short musical break and um, some of those of you who are familiar with my YouTube channel might have heard this song before. And uh, uh, after, uh, if you wish to call in during the break with questions or comments, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY. And I will be back. Um, in a couple of minutes after one or two short songs in about three or four minutes. Well, I'm back. You're listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism with your host, me, Roy Shoman. And um, 
I'm sorry, I had a little technical problem there um, with the uh, with the music, but everything worked out. Um, again, if you wish to call in, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY. And I've been reading today um, from Abandonment to Divine Providence by Father de Cossade. And um, I actually mentioned a couple of times in the last few minutes, Edestein and St. Maximilian Kolbe, because they are my icons for forcing myself to accept divine providence, so to speak. And I want to read a couple of short quotes from St. Edestein before going on with de Cossat. Remember, I may be talking the talk, but Edestein walked the walk. Because when she was in the uh, transit concentration camp, she wrote to her, she smuggled out a letter that went back to her sisters in the convent. And, she, okay, she's in this uh, concentration camp. Everyone is, it's terribly abusive treatment, needless to say. And uh, a total lack, I mean, of, of, of warmth, of food, of, of um, clothing, of, of uh, you know, they're being beaten, horrible stuff. And her comment to her sisters at Carmel was, the prayer has been glorious here. Okay, so let me read a couple of quotes from her. I have complete confidence in God and have surrendered myself entirely to his will. I regard it as a grace and privilege to be driven along this road under these conditions. If our sufferings have been increased, then we have received a double portion of grace and a glorious crown is being prepared for us in heaven. Rejoice with me. I am going forward unshaken, confidently and joyfully to testify to Jesus Christ and to bear witness to the truth. We will unite our sufferings with the sufferings of our King, sacrificing ourselves for the conversion of the Jews so that, they, so that all may know the peace of Christ and his kingdom. Another quote, It is not human activity that can save us, but the sufferings of Christ. To take part in these is my aspiration. And finally, I whatever did not fit in with my plan did lie within the plan of God. I have an ever deeper and firmer belief that nothing is merely an accident when seen in the light of God, that my whole life down to the smallest details has been marked out for me in the plan of divine providence. So, um, uh, and of course, the motto she took was uh, Hail Cross, Our Only Hope. So I just wanted to interject that although for me, <laughs> this, this may be theoretical, uh, it's actually not beyond, it's not beyond the uh, range of what's possible through, uh, you know, continual sanctification. Because the saints have, have reached that end. Look at the joy of the martyrs. Um, St. Saint, Saint Lawrence, you know, being grilled alive on a grill and saying to his torturers at a certain point, turn me over, this side is done. Anyway, back to de Cossade. The revelation of the present moment is more profitable in that it is addressed directly to us. Now, think of that. That's kind of cool. We all want um, to receive revelation, right? I, uh, some of us, you know, uh, are familiar with, with um, visionaries. Maybe, maybe they're Catholic, maybe they're Protestant, to whom God speaks, who receive visions, who receive, you know, words from God. Maybe it's what's going to happen, or maybe it's something else. And, of course, there's a part of us that wishes God would speak to us, right? Well, here's the good news. God does speak to us. He speaks to us at every moment, in the moment, in the divine will of the moment, in the providence of the moment. I'll continue with Dukosad. We are only truly instructed by the words which God pronounces expressly for us. It is neither by books nor curious research 
that we become learned in the science of God? These means of themselves give us but a vain knowledge, which only serves to confuse us and inflate us with pride. That which really instructs us is all that comes to us by the order of God from one moment to another. This is the knowledge of experience, which Christ himself was pleased to acquire before teaching. It was indeed the only knowledge in which, according to the words of the gospel, he could grow. For as God there was no degree of speculative knowledge which he did not possess. But if this knowledge was needful to the incarnate word himself, it is absolutely necessary for us if we would speak to the hearts of those whom God sends to us. So, this is, well, I'll, I'll continue, because he, he goes exactly where I was hoping he would go. We only know perfectly that which we have learned by experience through suffering and action. This is the school of the Holy Spirit, who utters the words of life to the heart. And all that we say to others should come from this source. Whatsoever we read, whatsoever we see, becomes divine science only through the fecundity, the virtue, the light, which the possession of this experience gives. Without this science, all our learning is like unleavened dough, lacking the salt and seasoning of experience. The mind is filled with crude, unfledged ideas, and we are like the dreamer who, knowing all the highways of the world, misses the path to his own home. <laughs> you know, I always I, I read these passages, and then I'm um, uh, then I'm kind of uh, paralyzed because because it seems incomprehensible that that one could add anything to it. But um, let me let me try to unpack this a little bit. Um, this is so perfect. This is so wonderful because you know. Um, I remember growing up, you know, you you read about these cultures where old people are revered for their wisdom. You know, maybe it's, you know, the American Indians or maybe it's Eastern Europe 150 years ago. And I remember being, uh, you know, whatever I was, a 12-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 25-year-old thinking, you know, how stupid these people were in those days to think that old people are wiser than young people like me, right? And, um, but our, our civilization, our culture has completely lost, lost the content of acquired wisdom. They've lost the concept of acquired wisdom. It's probably because, frankly, they've largely, we have largely lost faith. And as de Cossade is so beautifully pointing out here, Faith is the necessary translator, so to speak, between um, divine providence and the wisdom that we gain from it. That it has to flow through, um, what's the phrase he use, uses? Um, through faith, mystery becomes the life of the heart, or else it is a contradiction. It's, it's flowing through faith that the mystery of divine providence yields wisdom and and gets uh bears fruit in wisdom and since by and large um well actually the truth is most of us in other words those listening to the program do live a life of faith but the icons of our society are not living a life of faith um perhaps with the notable exception of our our current president but, um, you know, the, the, the Henry Kissingers of the world, let's say, are not living a life of faith. And the, the Bill Gateses of the world are not living a life of faith. Uh, not to mention the Hollywood celebrities who are considered, you know, kind of cultural icons. So, so um, you know, if one thinks in terms of those pictures out there of, of leaders like that, so-called leaders, of course... There is no equation between growing older and growing in wisdom. Many of them just grow sillier and sillier as they grow older. However, if one lives the life of faith, then not only does wisdom sprout out and grow from the soil, so to speak, of our experiences, but what Dick Hossad is saying here is it's actually the only 
genuine source of uh, wisdom and understanding. And um, I'll repeat the last few sentences in that light. That which really instructs us is all that comes to us by the order of God from one moment to another. This is the knowledge of experience. He's basically saying that our only source of learning actually is our own experience because our experience, what happens to us, is actually being sent to us by God. It, um, we only know perfectly that which we have learned by experience through suffering and action. I think we all know that, right? You learn something in principle from books or from other people or from formulas, but we only know things to their depth um, through our own experience and our own suffering and our own action. Uh, I don't think any of us would take our car to a mechanic whose knowledge only came from what he studied in school or read in books, or God forbid, to a doctor, to a surgeon who is about to operate on us. Um, and, and anyway, those may not be the best examples. Uh, certainly, think of the counsel that you give to people. In other words, think of when somebody comes to you suffering something emotionally and you console them. I bet that consolation comes from your own experience, right? I mean, you have to be able to feel into their suffering to know where to lead them. And the only way you can feel into their suffering is through what you've learned through your own suffering. Anyway, back to the Kosad. We only know perfectly that which we have learned by experience through suffering and action. This is the school of the Holy Spirit who utters words of life to the heart. And all that we say to others should come from this source. I'm just going to repeat that sentence. This is the school of the Holy Spirit who utters the words of life to the heart. And all that we should say to others should come from this source. Whatever we read, whatever we see, becomes divine science only through the fecundity, the virtue, the light, which the possession of this experience gives. Without this science, all of our learning is like unleavened dough, lacking the salt and seasoning of experience. The mind is filled with crude, unfledged ideas, and we are like the dreamer who, knowing all the highways of the world, misses the path to his own home. Therefore, we have only to listen to God's voice from moment to moment if we would learn the science of the saints, which is all practice and experience. Heed not what is said to others. Listen only to what is uttered for you and to you. You will find in it sufficient to exercise your faith, for this hidden language of God, by its very obscurity, exercises, purifies, and increases your faith. So, um, oh, I will continue. I have, I'll, I'll at least read one more paragraph. All ye who thirst, know that you have not far to seek for the fountain of living waters, it springs close to you in the present moment. Hasten then to approach it. Why, with a source so near, do you weary yourselves running after shallow streams, which only excite your thirst and give you to drink in small measure? The source alone can satisfy you. It is inexhaustible. If you would think, write, and live like the prophets, apostles, and saints, abandon yourself, like them, to divine inspiration." Let me see if I can summarize in, in the 90 seconds that I have left. God is all-powerful. He is all-good. He is all, in some sense, controlling. Everything that happens to us is divine providence. God is working on us. He is teaching us. He is speaking to us. He is communicating to us every single moment by everything that happens to us. The present moment is the, I don't know what to say, is the live stream coming from God, so to speak. The present moment is God live streaming to us 
what he wants us to experience, what he wants us to learn, what he wants us to understand. Our challenge, our task, is to receive the present moment with a heart full of faith and invite it into our hearts, kind of in the form of a prayer, asking that it uh, bear seed, bear seed in our hearts, that it invigorate our hearts, and that it, it enlighten our hearts with the wisdom of what God is showing us or teaching us or training us for in that moment. We should receive divine revelation. We should receive every moment as divine revelation. Now I'm going to end with a very silly metaphor, but it just sprang into my mind. Um, I used to be a very serious skier. I used to be a good enough skier that my skiing buddies were World Cup gold medalists and and uh, downhill. Um, actually, one of my skiing buddies held a w w world record for women's speed skiing downhill. Another of my skiing buddies actually invented the monoski and pretty much invented um, acrobatic skiing. Anyway, I was pretty good. And the the breakthrough came when I realized how to make a turn across the fall line in skiing. This is going to make no sense to 99% of you. But the natural tendency is to not want to fall, right? We go through life, we don't want to fall. We want to stay upright. We don't want to give our bodies over to gravity. To We don't want to release ourselves into gravity because that's falling. That's associated with falling. That's, you know, we fall downstairs or we fall on the floor if we release our body to gravity. Well, when one is skiing, when one crosses the fall line, in other words, go from the, the bottom of the hill being to your left to the bottom of the hill being to your right, you pass a moment where, where you're passing through the pull of gravity. And the natural tendency is to shy away from that pull of gravity that's trying to make you topple over. The breakthrough moment in my skiing was when I realized that, no, you embrace the free fall. You embrace the free fall. When you open yourself up fully to the free fall and embrace the free fall, everything changes entirely in the nature of your relationship actually to the force of gravity while you're skiing. <laughs> I don't know how many of you that'll make sense to. But anyway, I, that's a metaphor for this. I mean, we, we open ourselves up. We stop protecting ourselves from the event of the present moment and we receive it with open arms and open heart and embrace it instead of shying away from it. So with that, I have actually overstayed my welcome and continued beyond the normal termination moment of the show. So it's time to say goodbye. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Showman. And I hope you join us again next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now.